I would say the most important thing is that you have a strong sense of self. What I mean by that is that you have like an inner sanctuary. You know who you are, you know where you come from and where you go back to. For me, my family has always been incredibly important to know that, you know, my anchor is with them. Um, my life is with them. My identity is with them. Um, then I can always go back to that. I think it's a bit like, I always thought the image was a bit like being an astronaut, you know, who ventures out of the, of the spaceship and then is attached, you know, with this, with this rope and flies around, but you need to be attached to something. When it comes to mental health in the workplace, the buck stops at the top. A survey of 34,000 people across 10 countries revealed that 60% of people worldwide say their job is the biggest factor influencing their mental health. And whether we realize it or not, the way we show up to work as managers, leaders, or colleagues affects the environment around us and the people in it. Managers in particular have an outsized influence on our mental health in the workplace. The same study showed that managers have just as much of an impact on people's mental health as their spouse, and even more of an impact than their doctor or therapist. A whopping 81% of employees worldwide say they would prioritize good mental health over a high-paying job, demonstrating just how much the workplace environment can make or break an organization's ability to attract top talent and keep it. In today's episode, I spoke to Florence Gobb, the Director of Research at the NATO Defense College in Rome, about how to show up as our best selves at work and how to notice and prioritize the mental health of our colleagues and employees, including in times of crisis. We also spoke about fostering our self-confidence in order to show up authentically at work, how to learn from our failures and those of others, and what sports can teach us about resilience in the workplace. Hi everyone, and welcome back to MindWork, where we're on a mission to transform mental health in the workplace, one story at a time. I'm your host, Jasmine El-Gamal. Hi Florence. Hi Jasmine. It's so good to see you. Good to see you. Florence, you and I met on a plane to Baghdad, and I remember when I first saw you on that plane, I realized I had thought I was the only woman on that plane flying into Baghdad. And I was feeling a little bit weird about it. I was like, I don't know how to act. I mean, I look so young and surrounded by all of these men. And I was really nervous and kind of self-conscious, like what must these men think about me and why I'm on this plane to Baghdad? And then I look around and I see this shock of red hair. And I saw you. <laughs> I said, yes, I am not the only one. And you know, that was and was not just a flight full of men to Baghdad. It was actually also at night, which That's is true, which is doubly scary. But I had exactly the same thoughts as you. And I was looking around and that's how I spotted you, uh, because I was had exactly the same conversation in my head. Am I the only woman on this plane? And then I saw yeah. you, luckily. And so it turns out we were both invited to speak at the same conference and we had a great time. Obviously, it, it was a great conference, but we also really bonded over so many things, including being very often the only females or one of the very few females in these really high stress environments that we had both worked in. So you had worked in Iraq, you did your PhD on how militaries uh, kind of recover from civil war, which I think is a fascinating topic. And then you've worked at think tanks in Europe, in European capitals, focusing, what would you say, mostly on European issues or global security issues? Probably. I would say security issues more generally. I, I had a very strong focus on the Middle East, North Africa. Yeah. But, you know, over time, because my background is in conflict research in general, you know, with the war in Ukraine, I've ended up working more on the east of Europe. But yeah, I would say where the problems are, that's where our work is. And yeah. You know, Iraq, you know, when we met on that plane, this was already after the worst times that Iraq had been through since the invasion. But I remember being transported, I'm sure you've been through the same, to the green zone from the airport, you know, in these military uh, vehicles and, and, and being, you know, at just, it's 45 degrees outside and you're wearing a helmet and, and closed shoes and everything is, you know, I thought I was dying from a heat stroke. Literally, my heart couldn't take it. So, I think people who've never experienced that, they probably think, I don't know, this is adventurous and it's it's the movies, but it is 
extremely stressful. And I'm not saying it's not rewarding, but it is stressful yeah, to do it. Well, that's interesting that you said the word rewarding, because as you were saying that, and you're saying people might think it's adventurous, but it's not. And so someone listening to this might say, well, why do you do it? And why do you do it? Because, so the, why do you do it? Perhaps the first thing is, I'm, I'm not sure I'm courageous. Perhaps I just don't have enough imagination what could go wrong. But that doesn't mean that we're not aware of what could go wrong. I do remember this wasn't in Iraq. It was in Nigeria. We were we were out on a uh, at night and you're not supposed to travel around the country at night. And every time I saw a roadblock from a distance, I thought, okay, that's it. We're being kidnapped. And uh, so the awareness is always there. But why is it rewarding? Because as a social scientist, as somebody who's trying to contribute to a better understanding, to make things better, you have to be there. You have to be where the music is. And and it's the people that you encounter there that make it worth your while. You know, the Iraqis, the Nigerians, the Lebanese, wherever you go, they they appreciate you coming and seeing with your own eyes rather than just reading in a newspaper about it. Yeah, I mean, I know that in our field, or my former field, but in your field, I mean, there was there's always this kind of two groups of people, right? The people who actually go and see it for themselves and talk to people on the ground and then write their reports and make their recommendations. And then there are people who just kind of sit in cozy capitals in, you know, Washington, D.C. or Brussels or Paris or whatever and not bother to do that. So I actually do think... It is really important to do that, but it does come with risks. As you said, it also just comes with stress. It comes with fear. I mean, I wonder if, if maybe you could tell tell us and, and tell listeners and other people who may be coming up in this field, I mean, what kind of challenges, what kind of difficulties that you felt you had to overcome in order to rise up and and develop in this field. So when it comes to conflict zones, which I think is obviously the most extreme end of our occupation, I would say the most important thing is that you have a strong sense of self. And that sounds a bit new agey. But what I mean by that is that you have like an inner sanctuary. You know who you are, you know where you come from and where you go back to. For me, my family has always been incredibly important to know that, you know, my anchor is with them. My life is with them. My identity is with them. Um, then I can always go back to that. I think it's a bit like I always thought the image was a bit like being an astronaut, you know, who ventures out of the of the spaceship and then is attached, you know, with this with this rope and flies around. But you need to be attached to something. And that, of course, you know, you you also everything else in life that matters, you know, life hygiene, so to speak, like meditation and watching what you eat and drink and also information you absorb, all of that on top. But I would say the most important thing is know where your center of gravity is in life. Then you can go pretty much anywhere because you will never lose yourself. You always have a place to come back to. And I think that's especially important in environments like the ones we're talking about, national security, even journalism, academia. I mean, these are really tough, really competitive environments. I do agree with you that if you don't have a strong sense of self and a strong sense of who you are, it is so easy. And not only have we seen this, I've definitely experienced it as well, especially if you're starting out really young, especially if you're a woman in, in, a, in a sort of man's world, as they say, which is still the case. It can be really easy to get caught up in what you should be, how you should act, how you should dress, how you should speak. I mean, I wonder if you ever did that sense of self that you're talking about. Did you always have that or did you have to struggle to find it? Huh, I love that question. I would say, I mean, you start out with something. And so what I started out with, which I think helped me enter this profession in the first place was... I grew up in a very male-dominated household. I mean, I have two brothers. Obviously, I have a father, a grandfather, etc. But the whole thing, the way, you know, values that were appreciated, like playing in the woods and, and all of this was ultimately always told. I, the, the message I received was essentially it's much more important what you do than how you look. I remember one evening I was 14 years old. I came back from the hairdresser and had a meltdown because I hated it. And then I cried for a bit. And then my father at some point put his foot down and said, now I've had it. It's not about what's on your head. It's about what's in your head, you know? And oh, I think I this, this, this emphasis still today that the way women look and, uh, and how they behave towards men and all of this like feminine mystique nonsense, 
I think the fact that I grew in a, up in a household where there was almost no emphasis on that, mm. that definitely played a role. But then, of course, you know, you you build your sense of self also through your career and your and your work identity. And I think I learned a great deal, especially when I worked in NATO Defense College. Most of my course members were officers from the Arab world. Um, so you you shape, you navigate, and you take cues from the feedback that you get. And I, and I was lucky that a lot of the time it, it was very positive. But of course, there were also negative experiences, and then you also have to integrate that. So I would say. I started out with some capital and then I built it over time. Yeah, I'd be interested if you if you feel like sharing any of the negative experiences, because my next question was going to be, was there ever anything that sort of knocked you down? Ah, you felt like it, I, I feel like there could be a whole episode just on things that have knocked us down that we had to get up. But yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear about that. But I just wanted to say first that, you know, when I, again, when I first met you, I watched you at that conference, what... I was so taken by you because you just seemed to me as this person who really had a very strong sense of confidence, a strong sense of self. I mean, you looked amazing. You, it's obvious you love fashion. And we were in Baghdad at this conference surrounded by men in suits. And you just, you, you, you looked like you were someone who loved fashion, was unapologetic about it. But also you were really serious. I remember your talk. You had everyone hanging on your every word because you, your talk was so good. <laughs> so was that a balance that you had to work really hard to find? Was there ever a moment where any, you know, that confidence was sort of shaken by something or someone and you had to figure out how to get back on your feet? So first of all, well, obviously, thank you, first of all, for this very sweet. And I had a very similar expression, impression of you. And I, and I really appreciate it when people tell me nice things along those lines, because I don't think overall humans aren't necessarily super kind to each other. The thing is that I think, uh, first of all, yes, of course, I've been knocked down. And, and if anything, I would like to, for, for, for people that listen to this and get the impression, and that I hear that a lot, you know, Florence is a superwoman, she can do anything, she looks amazing, and, and all that, who think that my path has been easy, they're just wrong. I think... Uh, first of all, I don't think anybody's path is really easy because being human is not easy. And of course, like everybody else, I have experienced very difficult things, both in my private life and in my professional life. So I think that's just a general statement I want to I wanna make. Now, if I give you some examples, and then I'll talk about fashion, some <laughs> examples of how I've been knocked down. I think the really the most uh, difficult moment in the beginning of my career was I had just joined NATO Defense College. And somebody very high ranking told me to my face, we hired you, although you're a woman. And and wow. that really knocked me down. And because I thought, I, I think my gender should be irrelevant because I'm here because I'm good at what I do. And and uh, it upset me a great deal. And the way I handled it was that I, I, I had a very good boss, a U.S. Marine colonel, I went to see him. I just needed to confide in somebody. And then the next day I had a, uh, I started a fight with the assistant of this high ranking person over something. And then he said, why are you picking a fight with me? And I said, because I can't pick a fight with your boss. So I took the energy somewhere. It's not like I swallowed it. And, you know, at the end of the day, even that person, they came around and they said, you did an amazing job and, and, and we love that. And so maybe I turned things around, but you know, one of the things that I did at the time to, to help myself, because I thought this happened once, it will happen again, or something along those lines will happen again. I was just reading the biography of Gertrude Bell, you know, the British explorer of the Middle East and like 100 years ago. And I, I thought, well, she's a very good reminder that I am so, in, like my challenges are so insignificant compared to hers because it was before World War One. She was a single woman traveling in Syria with a bathtub, by the way. Um, and uh, and she climbed mountains and she drew maps and she, you know, she went to villages where they didn't have electricity and hot water and all of that. And I thought if she could do that, then certainly I can deal with a few misogynistic comments. So I printed a picture of her and I pinned it on my wall in my office to remind myself every day I came in, if she could do it, then I can do it, which is just, a, you know, an, an, another sign 
another way to say that how important role models are. And, you know, Gertrude Bell probably also had lots of shitty moments. Heroes are exactly. not built through streamlining, but I mean, this is again, bumper sticker territory, but precisely the way they handle the challenges will show you who they actually are, how, how well they, they, they get over them. And then about the fashion, I remember, well, I just love fashion. It's not, it's not my life, but I just love playing with it. It's part of creativity, expressing who you are. And I remember asking a colleague a few years ago, you know, for this event, should I rather wear these shoes or these? I would prefer these, but they're too bold. And he said, you know, people should see what they're getting. So just be upfront about who you are. And this is, again, you know, these are, we keep coming back to pretty simplistic statements, but actually I thought, yes, if they don't like who I am, then they shouldn't be working with me anyway. I, I love that lesson. I love that, you know, if they have an issue, I think that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned throughout my career, but it took me so long to learn that. I think maybe probably partly because I started young at the Pentagon, partly because it was the Pentagon and, you know, you don't, you don't, it's so intimidating, partly because I didn't have female role models that did exhibit that attitude, which brings me to, you know, what you said. I, I love that, pinning a picture of a role model and just looking at it every day and saying if she could do it, but also trying to remember and acknowledge that she probably had a picture, you know, the proverbial picture of someone, you know, the role model or or her own insecurities that she had to fight. I think one one thing that we do, I know I've done it, and I think, you know, I know a lot of younger women who are coming up in the field and younger and, and men as well, and not just younger ones. I mean, I think this happens all the time where we just tend to think that other people have a really easy time doing what they do. I mean, when someone is out there, they look confident, they're doing the job. You know, they show up to work, rain or shine, and you just look at them and you just wonder, man, I just, I wish I could be like them. And I just think that's so dangerous. It's so dangerous to idolize people and think that someone, just because they look like they're having an easy time, you have no idea what's going on. Yeah. It, yeah. Behind, behind closed doors or behind the scenes, which I think, and this is something that you and I have talked about, which is so important, I think, as a reason for us to be open or at least more open about how human we are. And this is what I wanted to talk to you and get, get your thoughts on yeah. because there is a balance, right? I mean, so if you're never vulnerable and if you're never open about the fact that you're a mere human, like everyone else, people around you, peers, younger colleagues, whatever, will look at you and think, well, I could never be like Florence, you know? But if maybe there's such a thing as being too open, then when you start to risk not being seen as serious or not being taken uh, as seriously as you would if you weren't talking about your vulnerabilities, have you figured out that balance? <laughs> I figured everything <laughs> <Some> out. <laughs> well, okay, let's start perhaps with a, it, it relates to the challenge question you asked me earlier, because uh, a few months ago, I didn't get a job that I really wanted. And it was a fairly open competition. So a lot of people were aware of it. So not only was I going through a defeat, I was going through it publicly. So how do you do that? Especially if you know, like, like I do, that there are people that look up to me and that take their cues from me uh, as an inspiration. So I felt a responsibility also towards them to fail in the best possible way so to speak. And I think you know, there is no textbook for this. You can't Google how to, def how to fail well, but I think authenticity does play a role. So, you know, at, at, we, we don't show up at work because we're individuals. We show up at work because we have a mission and we have a common project. So I think that's, that's the, the, the number one thing to never forget is that you know, the workplace isn't your family. It's not your friends. You see them all the time because you have a common goal. But within a team, authenticity is key. You know, like read the literature on leadership. Mm -hmm. Leaders need to be authentic. Because, why? Because authenticity creates predictability. If you know that 
a, you know, a certain person is, is, is always like this the day after. I had a boss in Italy uh, who was a, a big football fan. And every time that team lost, we knew just don't talk to him the next morning, right? Because <laughs> he's going to be terribly upset. So you want predictability and therefore you want authenticity. First of all, I would say all of us, we all bring normally our best possible selves to the job because that's why we were hired. And that means you bring, you know, whatever the job requires. This is the other question, right? Because creativity, if you're in a creative job, well, then you have to be creative on the job. And that means testing out different things and allowing for failure and what have you. And then you have other jobs, you know, the world that you used to be in, that I'm still in the think tank world, which is a bit more conservative and expects more, you know, reliability, etc. But at the end of the day, my experience has been, you always bring your whole self to the job, not your whole self will be active. You know, you will not tell your coworkers about, I don't know, certain things that you don't want to share, but who you are as in the being that you are, the way you see the world, you process information, you perceive information, the emotion that you have when it comes to these things, inevitably it will be there. I find it a bit artificial to distinguish between who you are at work and who you are privately. Again, that doesn't mean that you conflate the two, but ultimately you will bring everything. And as somebody who's managed people, I am completely aware of that. And I, I, I don't even mind it because you want your best, well, you will sometimes also inevitably get a bit of the worst. So people mm -hmm. that, I don't know, go through really severe stuff in their private lives. I had one case where I, I did notice that this person had taken time off regularly, just a day, so always a day off, just one, not like in leave a week or two, but here and there, every day, a week here, a day off, a day off, a day off, and always requesting the leave just on the day basically. So when I spotted that, I thought, okay, there's something wrong here because most people plan their leave and they want to travel somewhere and they don't just wake up one morning and say, I don't want to go to work today. When they do that, it means that there's a bigger problem here. And it turned out that was the case. And then in the end, we, we supported that person to go uh, on, a, on a health, a mental health break for a month and then to come back. So you could argue if you were a team, don't bring yourself to work. That's not my problem. That's the, this person's family's problem. True. But at the end of the day, you know, if you want to go back to what humans are at the very outset, we are social beings. We connect to each other. Um, we uh, knowingly or unknowingly pick up on each other's mood. So I would say bring your best, manage your worst. And if you can't manage, then we'll figure out something together. But I think that's definitely how I've seen it work the best. I've had, especially young women sitting in my office, really being overwhelmed with things like finishing their PhD and then struggling with tears and then telling them, you know what, that's totally okay. I've been there. I've struggled with that. Uh, it, 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 cut yourself some slack, mm -hmm. which is again, so counterintuitive in a world, which is all about work more, work harder, work longer, which boss says, no, I want your best, not your most. So I think that's also our responsibility as leaders to, to, yeah. to support that. We, I, I remember we had a boss at the Pentagon. She was the undersecretary of defense and she came in and it was a complete, complete shift from anything I had ever seen or heard before in that building. She just came in and she was very, very well established, very kind, you know, confident. Um, she had been around for a long time. She was very well respected. And she just said, if you're here until 9 p.m. every day, which, of course, that was the norm. And I remember not leaving before 9 p.m., even though I didn't have anything to do because I didn't want to be the person who left early, early being before 9 p.m., by the way. And she just said, if you're here until 9 p.m. every day, I'm going to think less of you, actually, because that doesn't seem to me that you're working very smart. I want you to work smart. I don't want you to work hard. And just the fact that this woman, this boss, this supervisor, leader was able to say that, that set, I mean, that set so many people free. I cannot tell you how many people just started, you know, thinking about their lives, thinking about going home to their families, you know, without feeling guilty. And so 
coming from the top, coming from leadership positions, coming from you as a supervisor, you saying, you set the tone, right? Yes. And, and that's so, so important because that's also something I had to learn. So it's one thing to tell your staff, don't work later than nine, but then you send emails after nine o'clock, exactly. they will respond. So for a while, I kept telling people, you do you, just because I write to you after nine doesn't mean I expect an answer. But then I realized, actually, no, you have to lead by example. You have to not email them after nine. You have to not write emails when you're on holiday because they're taking their cues from you. So yeah. I think that's that's also the responsibility of leadership. But if I can actually jump off on what you just said on this question of how long we work and work smarter, not harder. And, you know, I've read so many books on productivity. Fact is that you need to learn uh, as somebody who works in the knowledge economy to manage the engine that is you. There's you at a you know mind level or what have you, but you're not just a machine. You actually, you're not just a machine. You're not a machine. And once I realized that, you know, this this notion of eight hour work days comes from factory work and it's completely unsuitable for knowledge work, which is cannot be measured in terms of hours. So I'm writing a book at the moment and imagine the shock and horror that I realized my 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 sweet spot is to write for three hours hmm. and it's best in the morning. So from nine to 12, I write and then in the afternoon I do admin and things that don't require my creative and, and focus uh, strength. So you need to learn a, when is your prime for what? So you will find different hours during the day are better suited for this type of work or this type of work. I don't do uh, Zoom calls in the morning. I do them in the afternoon. You know, it's it's things like that. Know when your eng engine works best. And then, of course, all the other things around it, like getting proper sleep, uh, you know, don't don't self-medicate with alcohol, uh, eat well, see your friends, make some space for fun. I mean, all of these things, we keep saying them. And then it's almost like society goes, okay, but really, isn't there a trick to be more productive and to be a machine that churns out the brightest? No, there isn't. The human mind has its limitations, but it's also your most precious resource and your most precious yeah, production device. So take care of it and then it will actually deliver. Yeah. And that's so important for, you know, especially knowing that different people operate differently. Some people are early birds. Some people work best at night. You know, having, you know, being able to to have that flexibility to the extent possible at your workplace where managers, I've always thought that the best managers know, they know their employees inside out. They know how they work and how they operate. And then they they kind of tailor, like they, you know, they help Absolutely. kind of tailor yeah. the job to get the most out of that person. Yeah. No, which is actually, again, this was also an insight. You know, I always say everything I know about leadership, I learned from my team. Hmm. They taught me. And believe I it or not, one of the things that I discovered was <laughs> I went on a leadership seminar and we went through this exercise and I discovered not everybody's like me. And this sounds so banal, but it was worth the, the money because then I realized actually my job isn't to manage everybody like they're me, but I my job is to be adaptable and to respond to the person that's in front of me. Some people are completely self-starters. They work in a corner. They never want to see you except for when they deliver the product. Some people need handholding. Somebody actually, some people want criticism, you know. Mm -hmm. So it really depends who you're dealing with. And the good leader will be able to, to adapt to the person in front of him or her and get the best out of that person. That's good leadership in our line of business. And it's an art. It requires a lot of empathy, a lot of human, I would say, let me rephrase that. When I became deputy director, some people said, oh, now you have to do management, horrible. And actually I realized when you like human beings fundamentally, managing them isn't hard because you take, you can actually enjoy learning about the differences in people and how everybody is so unique. And I always found it funny to walk around and see the offices, how every office is different. It reflects who the people are that work in them, you know, some super messy, some super organized, some very colorful. So I think that's the, that's the art. Yeah. I love managing people. I managed people at my last job and 
you know, I hopefully, hopefully will manage again uh, at some point. But, uh, but I love managing people because I love getting to know people and like matching their personality to the task, you know, like really being a, you would be amazing at this, you know, this is, and, and, and hearing from them as well. And that brings me to something it's, it's along the same lines of what we're talking about, but you know, when someone is going through, this is again, just the importance of management and good leadership and the responsibility of supervisors. When you see that someone is going through a hard time on your team, the way, for example, you are so, I think it's amazing that you were able to recognize that pattern in, in the employee you were telling us about, because that can very easily be missed if you're not, if, if you're not looking for it, but also if you just, if you don't care about your employees in a human way, you would never notice that someone is just taking a day off here and there, calling in sick at the last minute. And then, and then think to actually do something about it. So I really applaud you for that. But I think it's really important as part of that a listening exercise, being a good listener as a manager. It's such an important, I think, pretty underrated quality. And, you know, people assume managers should tell, should speak. But I actually think that listening is such a critical part of being a good manager. Yes. And, you know, especially in, in the line of business that I'm in, you are like a conductor of an orchestra. Yes. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that every single person in the orchestra knows stuff that you don't. I'm not an expert on, on cyber. I'm not an expert on China. Mm -hmm. I have people in my team that know these things that I know nothing about. So they have superior expertise, but my job is to get the best out of them. So by definition, it means finding out how they tick and how you get them to deliver their best. So you more in a yeah, conductor slash coach logic yeah. than in I'm the boss. I'm telling you what to do. Trust yeah. me, I tried that in the beginning. It didn't, it took like a week until I figured out that's <laughs> not working. And so for cases where I found, for instance, people struggling, I one thing, one phenomenon that's quite common is, I'm not going to say writer's block, let's say failure to launch. People arrive and then for the first publication, they just get stuck. And, and I had one of those cases and I said to her, you know what, we just need to get this out and it doesn't matter it's, if it's not good, you're going to be just relieved and the next publication will be awesome. So let's just get it out and I'll help you care. I help, I'll help you get it out there. You know, I'll be your midwife. That's my job. But just to get, to, to bring her back into confidence. You know, yeah. to, to, and, I, and I can't remember who that was, but I said to somebody, look, if you have, if you don't trust yourself, or you don't have the self-confidence right now and you can't generate it, perhaps just take comfort in the fact that I think you're great. And if yeah. you think I'm great by extension, what I think about you is great. So you're great. Um, so and I think that's that's important to be able to give people encouragement and 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 empower them. Although that's kind of a stupid word because it's not me giving them the power, but but showing them I believe in you and I know you're good at this. And and if you're not, then we'll find how to get you there. So yeah. that's I think a super important uh, part of being a, a leader of a team. Yeah, and I also think. What I was getting at before is when someone, I, and this is, you know, specifically someone dealing with difficulty, someone dealing with, with, you know, a mental health challenge, a personal challenge, not only to make, to make it clear that you are there to listen without judgment and that you do want to know what's going on if they're comfortable talking about it. But then, and this is so, so, so important, I feel, to ask them what they need as opposed to you deciding they need X. So a lot of managers, especially now that mental health is kind of starting to be a thing in companies are trying to do more, more, starting to learn more, starting to institute, you know, certain practices or resources. And so this term duty of care is, you hear that a lot now in the workplace. You know, you have a duty of care. If someone is going through something, then you as a manager and as a supervisor, supervisor have a responsibility to make sure that they're not harming themselves or being, you know, feeling worse or, or putting themselves in harm's way in, in some way. And so you, so some managers, I think will tend to just say, okay, you need t time off, or I will take you off this project. You know, you don't, you need to go actually for some people, that's the worst thing that can happen. You take away their 
purpose, their reason for waking up in the morning. You take away their confidence by taking them off a project. Sometimes people who are going through a really rough situation do need time yeah. off and they yeah. do need to disappear for a while. But sometimes it's just the opposite, isn't it? Sometimes they just need more work. Like, give me more. I don't want to think about what's happening at home. I just want to work. And so being able to have that conversation and to really listen and take, like you said, learn from your employees, take your guidance from them, I think just can make a huge difference in a team and in a company culture at large. So we had exactly that case where an employee was going through a really difficult time at home. Then we put a trainee on, uh, by her side to help her. And in no time, that led to a huge conflict. Hmm. So the trainee came to my office and was crying. And then uh, I went to see her. And then we had a conversation. And I said, the problem is that actually we, we were trying to help you. And, and, I, and I said, is it perhaps that you're taking all these things on and you think we taking them away from you means you be disposable and eventually you'll be let go. And yeah. she said, yes, there's some truth to that. Exactly. So I said, well, see, he, we're coming just from an, a good intention. We want to help you. So perhaps can you just acknowledge that? Mm -hmm. uh, no, we don't want to take away your job and we don't want to make you feel less important, but we want to actually work as a team here. And it's normal that in a team sometimes, you know, one person carries a bit more until until the other is better. So that was a really illuminating insight. But then of course from my personal experience also, I can I can completely agree with what you just said about difficult I've had really difficult moments in my life where going to work, having to go to that place and getting mentally absorbed by what I was doing was giving me structure, mm -hmm. meaning purpose and also connection to the rest of the team you know they were my my people even if they didn't necessarily know what was going on in my life they were there and I think yeah. you know part of the Wonder Woman reputation that I have is because I, I would actually get stability out of my work when when everything else was kind of falling apart privately so I think that's absolutely don't just think people go through stuff a tough time so you can't count on them but actually Perhaps they need exactly that and they will be excelling because they mentally want to get away from something else. Mm. No, um, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, one thing that I was wondering about, actually, this had come up in conversation with a couple of other people that I was that I was talking to about this point. When we talk about collective difficulty or collective trauma, you know, for example, again, in our field, we have to deal with really difficult topics and we're we're on we're in the news not in the news we are we are look we are consuming news at a rate which is probably sometimes unhealthy you know you always have to kind of read about what's going on you have to think about it you are inadvertently getting all of this tragedy this trauma you're absorbing it absorbing it even you you might not be focusing it so you know for example if i'm writing on refugees and i'm having to follow stories and then i read about boats capsizing and people dying and migrants dying. Yeah, may, my article might be about refugee policy, which is very not, you know, not, you're not writing it emotionally, but you're absorbing obviously all of this emotion. So I was wondering as a supervisor, how do you deal with incidents that might collectively you know, hurt or challenge or traumatize your staff. Like, for example, I was talking to a, a woman who worked at a newspaper in France, and then we were talking about the Bataclan attacks and you know, the spade of terrorist attacks in France uh, a few years ago and how everybody would show up to the office kind of traumatized, really, and scared. But there wasn't really a mechanism in place for leadership to... A, either talk about it to their staff proactively, but also to let staff know that this was a big deal, that if they were having trouble, they could talk about it or here are the resources or they could take time. You know, how do you, I guess it's a very long-winded question, mm. but how do you, how do you deal with and how should a good supervisor deal with collective trauma and collective difficulties? And especially nowadays, it feels like every day there's something happening that is just like really, really difficult to read about. 
so so the first thing is in general i would say you know just as we need to develop a culture of like a diet an informational diet right you know you're supposed to eat vegetables and fruits and you know be easy on the sweets and what have you but for some reason we don't have that when it comes to information like mm. any information is out there boom, we stuff our faces with it and we are completely unaware of the consequences like you know it's the the statistic the, the data is very clear that if you absorb terrifying news all the time you will not feel good about yourself or the world. So how useful is it for you to know to see the latest footage of the earthquake or you know to see to know about the fact that there's so and so many nuclear weapons? The purpose of information is that you do something with that information. So unless you can act on it, so climate change for instance, change your behavior I don't know, write to your uh, local politician, but don't Google the worst case scenarios. You're just going to terrify yourself. And that goes back to what I said earlier. You are your own resource. Mm -hmm. Be very mindful of how you feed that resource with information. But you just mentioned um, the Bataclan. So I was in Paris during the terrorist attacks uh, and I came to the office and on, on Monday, so three days later, And uh, one of my colleagues came out of his office and said, France, Sébastien is dead. He was in front of one of the restaurants. And this was a, a guy I had studied with and my colleague, it was one of his best friends. And it was like in a movie, I was holding a handbag and I just dropped my handbag, you know. So because, I mean, it's, you see the films, you think people don't drop shit when they're, when they're shocked. Yes, they do. Oh my gosh. Um. And so how we handle it, so at, at the Institute, nobody handled it. But I think the image that always comes to mind is I once saw a, a news item about a fox that had broken into a penguin enclave in a zoo and, and all the penguins were really scared. And you saw them all huddled together in a corner. And this is, you know, we're human beings. We are social beings and we need to huddle together when something like this happens. So what we did, I remember we went out together for drinks. And it wasn't about the drinks. It was about we need to be all very close to each other and 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 acknowledge that we've experienced this together. But we take safety from the fact that we are a group and we are safe here right now. So I think from my leadership at the time, I would have wanted there to be more active care, especially because, you know, we were in Paris and the fear continued in Paris after the yeah, attacks. Yeah. And there was Charlie Hebdo and then there was... Bataclan and all the others. And of course, there were other smaller attacks afterwards. So it, it really felt like being, I'm not going to say a hero, but it felt like, okay, I'm in this city and I could be somewhere else, but I'm making it my choice to be here right now. But by extension, you know, as the person working on Daesh at the time, I've had to watch, like, I don't know if you had to watch that, but I've seen because I was a, an expert witness for many cases, I think for more than 50 cases in courts, especially in the UK. And I watched execution videos, propaganda material, you name it. And it's very funny because it's like for a lot of these pictures, my brain, like I cannot, like I can't, I can't access them anymore. It's like my, my brain just closed it off. So I try to remember what I saw and it's like access denied. You know, wow. some of the footage is like my brain literally said we cannot rewatch that mentally. But I think what happened to me instinctively was that as soon as I started working too much on these cases, I would get nightmares. And mm -hmm. then as soon as I had nightmares, I said, okay, I need to take time off and not work on this for two or three months. And then we can come back. So it's not like, It's traumatizing and it's it, it's eternally traumatizing. No, most people recover from trauma. And just watching these things, you can get over it. But here we come back to the sense of self. You know, go back into your space shuttle, be with your friends, be with your family, feel, you know, or be with the huddled penguins in the corner before you go out. Uh, so your battery needs to be recharged. You know, you, I think most of us charge our iPhones more than we charge ourselves. So that. do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that is so true. <laughs> and we, we are more, we are, we are more valuable than our iPhones. You yeah. think we would be, you know, taking care to charge ourselves up a little more. That's, that's can, so I, can I say pass one more thing that I wanted to expand on earlier on the question of defeat, how to, how to fail best. I think. Yeah. Again, this gonna a lot of it is gonna sound bumper stickery, but I literally I just made this up. I didn't Google it, but I think obviously the first thing is you just have to go with the flow, live the emotion, 
cry and scream and what have you. Boxing is great, by the way. I love boxing it is. for that. It is. Yeah, for anger release. And then <laughs> review the battlefield, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What is still there? And you'll find that most of the time, not everything is lost. Maybe you didn't get that job that you wanted, but you still have your capabilities. You still have your reputation. You still have your network. You still, you might still have your savings. Definitely still have your family and your friends. And and then when you start mapping that out, I mean, it sounds like a gratitude journal. But if you're like a general after the battle, you review. Okay, you lost, but look, this is still the things that we got. I think that's the second thing. And then at the end of the day, human beings tell themselves a story of who they are. So. Tell yourself the story in a way, you know, all the great stories are the hero's journey. I don't know if you know. Absolutely. Exactly. I talk about the hero's journey all the time. The hero is somebody who goes through defeat and challenge and loss and comes out better for it. And, you know, there's the term post-traumatic growth. Yes. It's not just post-traumatic stress, also growth. So if you if you use the defeat as an opportunity then actually there's there's a lot of great stuff in it. But is it comfortable? No. Is it fun? No, not necessarily. But it's also part, and I think part and parcel of the whole thing. And a friend of mine said to me, and I actually, this sounds weird, but it helped me. She said, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. Hmm. So this isn't about you. This is so this is how I read it. This isn't about me, Florence. This is about a system or, or situation that is like this by design. And and your job if you want to participate in this is to accept that. And perhaps my greatest quality, I would say, isn't even a quality. It's perhaps even a weakness, but I'm surprisingly resilient or perhaps immune to defeat in the sense that I just going to keep try until I make it. And that's always been the case for me. So it really is, you know, the stupid Edison quote, you know, I didn't fail so and so many times. I just found so and so many times that it doesn't work. Ultimately, I've always had the capacity to, when I when there is a defeat, to just ignore it and try again, try again, try again, try again, like a, you know, like an energizer bunny. And and maybe that's also a weakness because there's also moments when you just learn to let go. But don't Absolutely. think that I am where I am because everything just came towards me. I just overcame all the obstacles and I literally just ignore them. And yeah. why I have that capacity, I wish I could tell you. Maybe it's my upbringing, maybe it's genetic. Just ignore all the voices, literally, and just keep going towards the target that you have your mindset on. I think I think that's great. And I, I think, you know, first of all, that's a really positive note to sort of wrap up with, but it's a really important one as well, because I absolutely agree with you that it's all about the story. We do tell each tell ourselves stories about ourselves and our lives. And think about any situation. Three people would probably describe any given situation in three different ways, because someone is going to focus on this part. Someone is going to focus on that part. Someone is going to focus on a different part. So yes, you have the ability to tell yourself a different story about, and that's why I don't like the word. I really more and more dislike the word failure as as if it's a negative thing I started strength training a couple of months ago and I've never really lifted weights before. And there are so many interesting lessons that I'm learning in strength training that apply to real life. And one of them is that failure is actually not, and it doesn't have a negative connotation. When you work your muscles to failure, it actually means that your muscles are getting stronger. You're working them, you're working them, you, you, you can't do it anymore. So you take the rest that you need. And then when you come back and the more you come back and the more you do it, your failure point is going to be higher and higher. And it just means you're getting stronger and stronger. So failure yeah. is just yeah. a milestone on the way to actual and, success. And sports are obviously a great analogy for, for, for this because, so first of all, there's a, there's a series on Netflix called Losers. I started series. It's, it's I think five episodes or so that I absolutely loved because they tell the stories of five different sports people that you know they they objectively they didn't win, but actually when you watch the episodes you realize well they want something else. You know if you want to stay in the sports analogy for me, I'm a surfer. Surfer is a really hard sport to learn, and I was struggling. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm just too stupid for it or too weak for it, what have you, you know, so much for Wonder Woman. 
But then I discovered surfing is just about the time you put in. So even if you miss that wave or you surf it badly, everything goes into your database that your body will need or your brain will need to become better at it. So every minute in the water, since I've understood that, actually, it's become so much easier because I realized not every wave needs to be amazing. I don't need to excel at this. I just need to show up and Absolutely. I need to keep doing Absolutely. it ad nauseum. And just not give up. That's my only job. And I think that also applies, obviously, bumper sticker territory, but that applies to a lot. I agree with you. Uh, failure, you know, fail in the best possible way is actually an art because yeah. then you grow from it. I feel like that's like a, your next op-ed. Like <laughs> there's an article there that needs to be written, like how to fail, that's how to fail in the best possible way. I totally agree. And I, I think that if if there's one thing that I would want people listening this podcast listening to this podcast to come away with is that just show up, you know, just show up and learn. Nobody ever, you know, I know it sounds cheesy, but just like nobody ever got to where they were easily. And I don't know anybody who isn't at least somewhat grateful for the mistakes they've made or for the challenges that they faced, because we literally wouldn't be here where we are without those mistakes. Obviously, try not to do them again. <laughs> <laughs> try not to repeat your mistakes. But the fa- the challenges and the so-called failures, I think that's what makes us who we are. And that's and, and you just, you know, keep showing up. I love mm-hmm. that. That's a great, great piece of advice. It's so lovely to talk to you, Jasmine. Yeah. Thank you again, Florence. I, I'm really excited for people to listen to this. I think there was a lot of wisdom in this episode. So thank, thank you for you. your time. And I will talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you found this conversation helpful. Join me next week as I chat with Arno Michaelis as we discuss how to protect our mental health when we're working with really difficult topics such as hate, polarization, and extremism, an extremely relevant topic given the political and social climate today. We talked about how we can work together to foster understanding and spread love and acceptance between communities of different races, religions, and political views, and how Arno's own journey inspired him to devote his life to helping people find acceptance, empathy, and peace over hate and violence. So join us next week, and don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends to help us get these conversations to people who need to hear them.